This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Hi, all y'all. Welcome to We're Not Fine. This whole all y'all. It's my new, it's my new Southern vibe since we just came from Atlanta and I got yelled. You got yelled a lot. We got yelled. We got yelled a ton. And I didn't quite know when it included me and it didn't, but it evidently always does. We're not fine, fam. We, this is us on vacation. We're giving ourselves a week to just, you know, enjoy our lives and our family and just chill by a fireplace. Mine's not lit yet. I just got back an hour ago from L.A., grabbed some Chinese food. I ate a bunch of cream cheese wontons, some Peking chicken, Peking spare ribs. Yeah, really good. Anyway, a little bit of shrimp lo mein. I've had a little bit of that. I've got some for tomorrow. Um, Anyway, so here's the deal. You're right, though. Like We have been running and running and running and running and running. You were in California. I was in Los Angeles. Um, We both were in Atlanta for a project. I mean, there are so many things that have gone on, and really – I like what you said, you know, Talia and I talked before, and the reality is we hope to practice what we preach. Practice. I think I said practice. We're walking the talk. We're walking the dogs. We're modeling how to have some good self-care when things are crazy. But we also have amazing episodes to share with you that we did with other podcasters. So mine, I was able, and everyone loved our grief episode with Kelly Grosslugs, who is my dear, dear friend and colleague for, gosh, so long. I don't even want to say how long that is because because it's really long. Like but, 65 years. Like, I don't know, 70? 70, 70, <laughs> 75 years. So, but Kelly asked me to be on her podcast after she was on ours because she knew my mother had died and she kind of wanted to hear more about it because it is a very complicated grief story. So we would like to offer that to our viewers this week, in addition to one that you did. So we're going we're gonna to do, I guess, our bonus episodes where you can hear how we are on other podcasts. Yes. And in fact, so today, Tuesday, we're dropping the episode that's going to be Doug speaking with Kelly on her See My Grief beautiful, beautiful podcast for anyone that's dealing with any kind of grief. And the second half of this week's episode is my workshop I did with Billy for her podcast, which is called Unlock Your Child's Full Potential. And it's all about boosting your child's emotional intelligence or are you laughing at me right now, Doug? What is so funny about emotional intelligence? I talk about how to foster a really emotionally intelligent home. And Doug thinks that's funny. Do you know what's funny? So I'm just off of a, you know, a multiple, you know, evening excursion for my daughter's birthday in LA. And I just got off the plane and I am like a little delirious. So that's 
that's why I'm not feeling very focused. So I just want to also validate that that's how it works for me. And friends, guess what else? Thursday, we're dropping another bonus episode. And it is my conversation with Sterling Mosley. If you liked his narcissism episode. I did. I love Sterling. What really happened is one of our eight questions that we were dying to ask him was about how are there 27 types of narcissism? Oh, what? The Enneagram? Should we talk about that? And then we accidentally made that an entire episode. But I think the benefit of it, Talia, is that people who love the Enneagram are going to really enjoy understanding how the Enneagram and narcissism interrelate and associate. And by the way, again, Sterling, it's like kudos for allowing this segue and also <laughs> rolling allowing, with it. Allowing sounds like he wasn't a reciprocal. He was texting me during the podcast episode saying, <laughs> Doug, what's going on? Should I just keep talking? And I said, as long as you're okay with me, like taking a bath and like going out to the hot tub <laughs> and going for a hike. Well, Talia talks about the. So I need all y'all to write in. And then periodically saying, Doug, what do you think of that? I didn't know what you were talking about. I don't know. I what know. I was like, Doug, isn't this the best episode you've ever heard in your life? And Doug was snoring. And Can I tell you something? I mean, it kind of speaks to my personality. Yeah, my personality does. is one that when there's a plan, I like, I need a plan. I like to have plan. I like to have some sense of like what we're doing. And when I get thrown off, I'm like, oh, um, I do not track. Right. So that is absolutely my thing. Well, and I, you're the opposite. You're lucky enough to be with me. Yeah, I'm just like, you know, hold on by the seat of your pants, flying by the seat of your pants, fly by night. That's well, me. Mean, this is a really beautiful side perk for all people who love Enneagram. And if you don't love the Enneagram, you don't love the Enneagram. I'm fascinated by the Enneagram. I'm just not an expert in it. So I, you know, don't have a lot to contribute to that conversation. But I love well, Just episodes. your dimple and your pearly whites are enough to contribute to any episode. I'm aware of that. You guys, we hope you enjoy this week. So you might not get us live in action every day, all day this week, but you're going to get three awesome episodes. And wow. they are live, but they're just live in the past they're live in the past and you could just picture us picture yeah. doug eating shrimp lo mein yeah. while you're listening and picture me having some slovenly cozy situation by the fireplace we wow. love all y'all and we'll see you next time enjoy this week's episode see you next week And now let's welcome Dr. Talia Jackson. Hi, Talia. Would you please Hi, introduce Penny. yourself first? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And they are juicy nuggets. And I love the idea of the summit and EQ and IQ and helping to nurture and encourage our kids to have both. Um, It feels like the total package. So I'm happy yeah. to be here. I'm so thankful. Well, I'm just going to dive in. Um, it's basically, 
I'm going to give so many practical tips and tricks. I'm going to, this is how today is going to unfold. Um, first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about emotional intelligence and how it's different than IQ. And then I want to talk to you about some reasons why certain people maybe have less emotional intelligence than others. And then I want to help you figure out how to model and encourage a an emotionally intelligent home. So That's first, amazing. yes, I know I'm excited. I really had fun, um, you know, thinking about all of this and thinking about how I wanted to share it with everyone. So first, let me tell you what it is. Um, EQ or emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of control and express one's emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathically. And some will say that it is literally the key to personal and professional success, Because you can have a really high IQ, but if you can't connect with others, if you don't know how to handle relationships, if you don't know how to regulate your own emotions, life is pretty lonely. You are probably not going to get that job. You're probably not going to get that second date. You might not know how to really connect with others. And so it's a really important skill to have. I think we're all born with some, some more than others. And then we just need to keep practicing. We need to understand the components of it and just make it a daily practice. So I'm a psychologist in private practice, and I found this is my hunch. These are the reasons why certain people don't have emotional intelligence. One is it's just lacking knowledge. Some people, most people, you grow up in a society, a family or an environment that doesn't even talk about emotions. And sometimes it's a cultural taboo. Being happy or sad is frowned upon. You know, I mean, like there are some cultures where even being too happy makes people think you're stupid and being sad. I mean, especially in this culture in like the United States, I feel like is also frowned upon, but the, the cultures that don't talk a lot about emotions, they might express their unhappiness through somatic expression such as like if you have a parent that's like always tired or always has a headache or always needs to go to bed early or is always in pain, that is often an expression of sadness or depression or hopelessness or anxiety or whatever that is. But if you don't talk about it, it just looks like illness. The second reason why some people have a lower emotional intelligence is they don't have intrapersonal skills, which is different than interpersonal skills. So intrapersonal intelligence is the ability to understand your own inner life. It's being in tune 
with your thoughts and emotions, just acknowledging, checking in with yourself. You're, and this is like basically people who are really in touch with their own fears, their concerns, their hopes, their dreams, and are able to then understand other people's emotional experience, other people's motivations, other people's behaviors. It always starts with ourselves. The third reason why some people have a lower emotional intelligence is a lack of practice. So even if you, in theory, understand emotions, the practice comes in, and this is the hardest part, with self-awareness about your own triggers and an ability to non-defensively accept when people give you feedback about how your actions may have affected them, which is so challenging for most of us. And then the next part is repairing. And actually, when you own it, apologizing, and then a behavior change, right? I mean, this is like, how do we expect our children to be able to do this if it's challenging for us to be able to do this? And what they say is an apology without a behavior change is just manipulation. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's intentional, but that's just what it is. If you apologize every time you do the same behavior that really bothers somebody else, is it really an apology? We're not sure. Okay. And this is the doozy. Like I was able to kind of breeze through the other reasons, but this one, we're going to linger here for a while because this is really the heart of emotional intelligence and it's our upbringing. And so when we're thinking about how to help encourage our children to have emotional intelligence, we have to start by being really honest with ourselves about our own family of origin and that belief system around acknowledging and communicating feelings because most of us don't even think about it. And in order to help our children, we have to be really self-aware. So for instance, I'm going to give you so many examples. Um, Some of them are really personal. You're going to know more about me than you probably want to by the end of this talk. But just, you know, I'm a mom of two teenagers and it just feels like it would be helpful for me to explain how I go through these steps and it might help you go through the same steps as well. So first thing to pay attention to in our upbringing are the subtle messages about expressing any sort of negative emotion. So I want you to be thinking about your own family of origin that belief system around expressing emotions. And then I want you to think about the subtle messages that you're giving your children and maybe even yourself. So these are some of the subtle messages that having and expressing negative emotions is not okay. Come on, stop crying. 
It's okay. You're fine. You're being too sensitive. Just buck up, honey. It's time to move on. What now? I don't have time for this. Stop crying. Stop being a baby. What? Are you just going to mope around all day? You're just tired. You'll feel better tomorrow. Or even sometimes just blaming them for their own sadness or anger or discomfort. Well, maybe you should have just done what I told you to do to begin with, and then you wouldn't be in this situation, you know, which I am telling you, do not feel creepy that you're the only one that does this. Everybody does this. We don't even notice that we do this. And so you might want to just think about this transgenerational messaging and sometimes trauma right? That it's our generation that needs to break those cycles and make it a safe space for us as the parents or the caregivers to experience our emotions without shame and express them. And then it gives our children the same gift of the safe space. So one example that I have for you about how I work through some of these really challenging dynamics with my kids. Um, And it's vulnerable, right? So this is what it looks like to be vulnerable about a yucky parenting moment that I then learned from, and it has then dictated the way that I do this dynamic differently. So here's the example. Um, My eldest son is 15 and he had his first day of football practice. This was last fall and he was so incredibly anxious the entire ride to the first day. He heard the coach was tough. He knew some of the kids were, they'd been playing for years. He was a freshman. He was feeling inadequate and he started freaking out. And by the time we got to the parking lot, he was like, I'm not getting out of the car. I made a mistake. I'm not doing this. I don't want to play football. It's not for me. So (laughs) there are lots of ways to handle that situation. But this, I decided, was a teachable moment to teach him some life lessons about toughening up, building a strong character, which really what that was, was manipulation and shaming him about how he can't let his anxiety and feelings stop him from showing up on this important day. So this is a combination of the thoughts that were going through my head, but also what I was saying. And it doesn't even matter what's what, because I probably was saying the nicer things, thinking the uglier things, But they hear it all. They read it all. They feel it all. So I just combined them together because I felt like people could relate. So here's the vibe. You can't just not go to something you said you were going to go to. What kind of a person does that? What is the coach going to think of you? You have to calm down and just get over this. Oh, my gosh. Now you're going to be late. I don't have time for this. I need to drop you off so that I can get to my next thing. I wasn't counting on sitting here for 15 minutes. And he got out of the car. And I, for two seconds, I was like, yes, we did it. Like success. I'm relieved. He's going to practice. 
And then I started feeling horrible about the way that I mishandled that whole situation. And I couldn't shake the feeling that I emotionally abandoned this sweet boy in his time of need. So I'm going to start naming some of the things that I'm going through so that you can start noticing what is what. So self-awareness. My agenda conflicted with his, and I cared more about the outcome and others' potential judgment of him than his feelings. And I shamed him and I bulldozed him to get the desired result that I thought legitimately was in his best interest. So I had to be quiet in my own head and face the ugly truth that I was the one who was dysregulated and triggered by his anxiety. So that's the self-awareness. And then I want to teach you a little something called compassionate self-reflection. You can then shame yourself for being a horrible parent and having a terrible reaction to what just happened. But compassionate self-reflection is when you can kind of sit on an observation deck above or behind yourself and just be curious about your own reactions without shame spiraling. So for instance, this is what you can do. You can tell yourself, okay, I'm going to be curious about this. It's an explanation maybe for why I did what I did. But as an adult trying to do my work, I know that it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Oh, I get why I'm doing this. I get why that's triggering to me. But it's not an excuse. I have to do the work. I have to do better than the last generation. Everybody is 100% responsible for their own emotional and mental health. I need to figure this out. And so I ask myself, okay, why did I react that way? Here's my answer. I was raised by an immigrant mom, right? I mean, everyone has a story. Everyone's is different. Her family were Israeli. Her family survived the Holocaust. So there wasn't a lot of room for some kid born and raised in the United States to have a lot of feelings that weren't a 10 out of 10 trauma. So what are the subtle messages, or in my case, not so subtle messages that come from above, that come from my family of origin? Who cares how you feel? Do it anyway, which is also like my mom held herself to the same standard. So it's suck it up, compartmentalize, you honor your commitments to whomever you committed, and you get A's at all costs because that's the ticket to freedom. Feelings are an inconvenience. They're a nuisance. No one cares. Everyone's got problems. You're either a person with excuses or you're a person who succeeds anyway. So my own people-pleasing, my own fear of letting go, or I'm sorry, my own fear of letting down an authority figure or having someone think I'm lazy or a failure or not a person of my word. This was 
my own value system and my own agenda and anxiety. And I knew right then that I needed to repair with my son. And I had to promise to notice my own dysregulation from here on out because that dynamic still happens. And my sweet boy has anxiety from time to time that feels really debilitating to him to like enter new situations. So I now see that dynamic and it helps me self-regulate and remind myself every time that his feelings, his emotional experience, his feeling safe to express himself to me is more important than me shoving him into what I consider to be success. So he needs to learn how to regulate his anxiety that pushes him into the fight or flight, but it's my job to help him regulate, to be a safe space for him, to encourage him to follow his dreams and not to be the one who's like shoving him through the goalposts of life. So that's the example. And then the second really powerful piece of the family of origin reasons why we sometimes don't have so much emotional intelligence. And I bet most people haven't even thought about it this way. It's called emotional gaslighting. So maybe our parents and now we, without even noticing We're gaslighting our kids about our own emotional experience because it feels really weak or vulnerable, or sometimes people even just feel like they're protecting their children from whatever negative feelings they're having. So this is what that might look like. And it's so innocent and we might not even notice it. But like if our kids ask us, are you okay? Are you frustrated? Are you mad? Are you sad? Are you tired? Whatever it is they're asking us. And most of us have this automatic reply of like, oh no, honey, I'm fine. Nope, I'm fine. I'm fine. All good. This is what we're robbing them of. And these are really important skills and really important gifts that we give our children. It's we're robbing them of the skill to read other people and trust their gut about other people's expressions of their emotions and what that means. And another really beautiful concept is co-regulating. So co-regulating means if somebody's dysregulated, Like if I'm dysregulated and I'm not letting anyone into my experience, I continue to be dysregulated and I'm all on my own in it. But if I allow somebody to be a part of that emotional experience with me, our nervous systems regulate. If my kid is dysregulated and I join with them in that really challenging moment, We're co-regulating. If I allow someone else in that moment and I allow them to comfort me, co-regulating. And it stabilizes both of our nervous systems and it immediately helps us regulate our emotions. Our kids need to see what sad, frustrated, disappointed, angry actually looks like and then They learn the soft relationship skills 
first it comes with us, right? We have to be brave enough to say, actually, honey, thank you for noticing. I am frustrated. I had a hard day. I don't have a lot of patience. I didn't even notice that I was feeling that until you mentioned it. And this is what that gift is. That one moment where we choose to be real with our kids or our spouse or our friend or whomever, this is the gift. This is what they learn. We're human. It's not a crime. It's not shameful to admit that you're not perfect. You can allow someone to acknowledge their emotional reaction and you can actually let them into that shared experience with you. You can be called out lovingly on a behavior without getting defensive, without getting angry. And then this is where the real magic comes in. So by us being brave enough to actually put out there what we're feeling, it gives our ch- our kids a chance to practice their comforting skills, which is literally the greatest thing ever. So we're either fine and grumpy or we're like, actually, honey, I'm a mess. I'm so tired. I need a hug. And then it gives them a chance to step up and like rub our back and give us a big hug. And they don't feel like we are mad at them. They feel like they're a part of our emotional life and that they have something to offer us in a time of need. Greatest gift. Um. Okay, so this is where... I move on to the part where, okay, now what, right? Like this is how you can create a very EQ nurturing environment at home. And as you may have already noticed it, I'm all about, it starts with you. Like we have to do the work or else everyone around us has to do our work. So that's the secret. In order to teach emotional intelligence, we have to actually model it. So my sweet mom, who did the very best she could, (laughs) she always used to say, do what I say, not what I do, which I always laugh about now that I'm a mom, because as most of you that are doing any kind of caregiving know, that's not even a little bit how it works. Like nobody listens to you. They're just watching what you do and how you are in the world. And that's how they develop their own belief system and their own self-regulating techniques and their own, you know, personality, the way they are in the world. So first we start with self-awareness. How do we model self-awareness? One way that is a really great skill for so many reasons is we narrate our own experience. We narrate our observations of our inner world, owning our own feelings, our own mood, our own reactions. It's that simple, but it's very heady. So I've got a million examples. (laughs) So in terms of self-awareness, this is this is what you can do. This is what it might sound like. Oh, I'm so nervous about this interview I have later today. 
Or I'm so excited to go out with my friends for dinner tomorrow. They make me feel so good about myself. Really simple things, right? But it like, it sets the stage for I'm having a feeling and I'm going to share that with you. And this is what it looks like. You can read that. It's congruent. So now you know, I'm really scared looks like this. I'm really excited looks like this. So it all comes together with the self-awareness or you know, I'm really preoccupied and worried. I mean, this is like in real time, right? I'm really preoccupied and worried about our family in Israel. And I'm definitely in my head and I'm not very present right now. I'm really sorry. You know, be patient with me. Or I hate the way I just snapped at you, which again, it's an explanation, not an excuse. I had a really long day And I didn't even realize, but I was really hoping that by the time I got home, you guys would have already put away your dishes. And then when I came home to a mess, I got really upset, but I realized I didn't even communicate my dream, my wishes to you. And I'm really sorry that I got angry immediately without giving you a chance or without even communicating, hey, honey, could you do this thing? So that's self-awareness. Next, understanding moods and emotions. This is how we model it, by staying regulated while we're communicating about our inner experience. It It's giving our children compassion while we attempt to, and I made this word up, co-narrate their emotional experience for them, giving them words for complicated emotional responses and giving them empathy rather than judgment. The reason why I say co-narrate is because they don't have the vocabulary. We barely have the vocabulary. And so if they're expressing all sorts of rage and anger and whatever that is, it's an opportunity for us to co-narrate, offer them some possibilities, some non-judgmental options for them about what they might be feeling, why they might be feeling that. So for instance, like, sweetheart, you look so frustrated. Do you want to talk about it? You seem to be really struggling. Is it possible you're tired or hungry? Or I completely understand why you'd be angry about that. I'd be mad too. And then we can ask them to try to describe whatever situation has them upset and then have them practice describing how it made them feel. And we get to be a part of this conversation with them, which is really beautiful, right? So it's going to be a hard conversation to have. But the more we talk in an emotional way, the more they're going to learn, the more it becomes this really beautiful connecting experience. Um, Yeah, it's having a compassionate witness And it just betters everyone's mental health. And it makes us feel so much more connected. And like, imagine the difference in the quality of a relationship when the answer to how is your day, right? And adults are guilty of this, of course, all the time. How is your day? You can either say, fine, long, same old, same old, right? Like conversation closed or... And I'm thinking adults or kids here, 
Well, remember Jimmy with the spiky hair who, you know, is in my, you know, whatever, like HR or math class or whatever, like cast of characters. Well, today he blah, 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 blah. Or I studied so hard for that test in honors bio and then I totally froze up and I blew it. Or Well, I gave someone my number today and I'm just freaking out wondering if they're going to call me, which of course is very antiquated because nobody gives anyone numbers anymore. I feel like they just snap each other, but you know what I'm saying. And then if you like fast forward from this kid to an adult, who would you rather be married to? Like, who would you rather be in a relationship to? Somebody who has a rich inner world and knows how to communicate that, who knows how to encourage these like deeply intimate conversations or someone that's just like, fine, good, tired, you know, whatever. So it's good for us to work on these skills and model that to our kids. So then we come to modeling our regulating our emotions. How do we teach our children how to regulate their emotions? We regulate our own out loud, and then we encourage them to do the same. So some examples of this are when we acknowledge that we're on the edge by communicating our own frustration, anxiety, irritability, exhaustion, which means that instead of plowing through whatever care task or whatever event we're doing with like a grumpy and tired and exhausted and resentful and frustrated, we actually take a time out and we say, guys, I know that I'm literally in the middle of making dinner or whatever it is I'm doing, but I am so fill in the blank tired, you know, frustrated, angry, whatever, that I'm just going to take five. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to cry. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to take a quick walk around the block. I'll be back in five or 10 or 15 or an hour or whatever it takes to regulate your own nervous system. And then I'll be back, hopefully in a better headspace. Like the message is I'm taking care of myself so that I don't have to take it out on anybody else. It's the idea that you can be mad, but you can't be mean. Just because you're in the middle of an emotional lightning storm, electrical storm, instead of taking it out on people that you love that are in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's an opportunity to protect those that we love from our own bad vibes, our own negative headspace. Um, And one thing that I talk to my clients about that um, I feel like is kind of a sweet reframe, and because I do a lot of couples therapy, is oftentimes if somebody's upset, they come off as a really prickly, scary, possibly dangerous and unpredictable a porcupine. Nobody wants to go up to a porcupine and pet them and hug them and comfort them. 
they're terrifying. Most people want to get as far away from that as possible. And so if we own our own challenging feeling, what happens is that our porcupine vibe, which is like, get away from me, even though we don't mean it, it turns into a hedgehog vibe. I don't know if you guys know what a hedgehog is, but they're literally miniature, soft little porcupines that are so cute. Like you may have seen videos of them taking baths in a sink. I mean, they're literally the cutest. And so if you are a sad, wretched hedgehog that needs a little love, you might be inviting in people to comfort you and love you and be compassionate with you. So we're modeling all of it. And the last piece, is this the last piece? I think so, is empathy. How do we teach empathy? And of course, just, you know, I'm a broken record. First, they hear the way we talk about others. That's how they develop their belief system. So if we see somebody or notice somebody, or if they see or notice somebody that's having an emotional breakdown or they're crying or they're angry or they're homeless, you know, you're driving by someone who's homeless on the side of the street or just down on their luck, or even you might not think about this, but even someone who's really happy and celebrating a big win, they're listening to the way we view this and handle this. So what are the subtle messages that we're giving? We've got to think about that for a second. Here's one way that they we might be reacting. And then these are the subtle messages. Well, that's embarrassing. They're being a total baby. They're overreacting. Well, it's their fault they're in this predicament anyway. Maybe they should have eaten healthier or maybe they should quit doing drugs. They just need to get their act together. Or like if you see someone rejoicing or really happy or sharing really good news, and our reactions are, well, aren't they braggy? Aren't they a bad winner? Aren't they on their high horse? Don't they think they're all that? You know, that vibe. Here's the difference. That's all sort of this like scarcity mentality, which is a judgment, which is them versus me or them versus us. We're good. They're bad. Or if they're celebrating something, they're bragging, they're too high, you know, they're too big for their britches, and that makes us feel better. So here's the other side of that. This is how we model empathy, which is more of the abundance mentality and more we're all in this together. There's more than enough love, success, beauty, to go around. So I wonder what's happening for them. They seem so sad. Let's send them some good energy or let's go give them a hug, right? You can do this with siblings. Wow. That person is clearly having a terrible day. I know they just gave us the finger, but man, let's send them some love because they're clearly going through something right now. Or 
I wonder how that person even became homeless. I can't even imagine what it would feel like to have nowhere to live or to have to rely on the kindness of strangers for my next meal. Or with the happy scenario, sell like the abundance mentality is I celebrate other people's joy because it does not take away from me. And I want to teach my kids to do the same. I am so happy for them. Oh my gosh, they worked so hard for that promotion, that medal, that prize, that A, whatever it is. They deserve happiness and love and joy and success. And it also teaches kids to be curious and compassionate rather than judging or just assuming the worst in others. And it's the idea that we're all doing our best. We're just a squirrel trying squirrel trying to get a nut. I say that all the time. Like we're all just trying to do our thing. And sometimes that's not very good. But when we know better, we do better. Because the goal is to raise a child that can celebrate somebody else's wins. And that can also know what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes and comfort another person that's struggling. And that is success. And that's emotional intelligence. The end. Wow, Talia, (laughs) I loved it. You gave so much actionable steps to follow. Actionable steps. One question. I have one question. You said uh, you have teenagers, and I know you have a great connection with them. Is that the way to get to that space? Because a lot of people are afraid of the teen years. So what you explained about emotional intelligence and how to build awareness and how to model it, is that the way to have nice teen years with our kids? I think so. I mean, let me tell you, Billy, it's, I'm still going through it, right? Like, it's not like, oh, they're so perfect and they never go through any challenging stage or do anything sketchy or push back or whatever it is. But the idea is that you can create a really rich and intimate connection with your kids if you're honest with them and if you nurture this really authentic connection that's non-judgmental because the reality is, and I remember we talked about this on your podcast as well on that episode that we did um, about having um, open conversations with your closed off teen. But the idea is they're still going to do all the things. They're either going to tell you about it and let you in because you're a safe space for them, or they're not going to tell you about it. And they're either going to be telling someone else's emotionally safe parent, or they won't have anywhere safe to talk about it. And so I feel like it's really important that you know that not talking to them about these things doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means that there's no safe place for them to work through it. So yeah, I think it's all about having these beautiful, intimate conversations. Literally, there's no such thing as being too young for it. You are always narrating your experience and other people's experience and what you're noticing and what you're wondering. So great advice. I'm not narrating. I'm always in my head. So that's something to work on. 
Right? And then you could just say it out loud. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the See My Grief podcast. I am Kelly Grosslogs, your podcast host, and I am so excited about today's episode. Having my sweet dear friend, Doug Jensen, on, who I met, oh my goodness, probably many, many years ago, many years ago in graduate school. Decades, Kelly. Uh, Decades. I know, Doug. Decades. And we have. I had an instant connection, let me put it that way, to Doug when he came in to speak to one of our classes. And we have remained very good friends. Doug has a practice here in the Twin Cities, and I am bringing him on today as a huge honor. A little side note, though, Doug and I are recording at 10 after 12, and we were supposed to record at 10 o'clock. So we have had a little bit of a backstory here, having a beautiful conversation prior to. It's been so great to catch up. I'm also realizing the more we catch up, Doug, the more we have to catch up on. I agree. So I want to welcome you, and I'd like you to kind of introduce yourself. You are a new podcast co-host, but tell us a little bit about who you are, Doug, and welcome. Kelly, really, thank you so much for having me today, and really, the honor is mine. I am so delighted with the fact that after all of these years, you and I remain very connected And again, we can just pick up where we left off. And again, I agree with you that everything we talk about has so much expansion we could have, which we will continue over those lovely drinks at that place that we went to. That's right. So I've been in practice now, and it's it's really interesting to look back, right? I even think about grief as a concept. And you and I both took a grief course in graduate school in preparation for our clinical practice. And it was life-changing for both of us. It so resonated with us. And I have focused my practice on a number of different issues. You know, the podcast, We're Not Fine, that I do with my co-host, beautiful and talented and smart Talia Jackson. It's based on relationships because relationship work is a great deal of what I do in my private practice. But I have also specialized in kind of trauma and grief surrounding people living and affected by HIV and AIDS. When we were in graduate school, we had a foundation practicum we needed to do. And I contacted the Minnesota AIDS Project to ask if they could develop something for me because nothing was there. And I had just an incredible privilege of getting to know people and getting to know about that disease and getting to know about the social stigma and talk about disenfranchised grief. I mean, the level of social and physical and sexual and emotional losses that everyone and financial, there were so many losses that were so compounded for people at that time continue to be as I continue to work with longer term survivors. But it has been really a focus. And it's really interesting. I also would say, Kelly, just on a very personal level, you know, you and I have been talking about my mother recently dying, which is a very complicated relationship for me. But as we grow older, our losses and our own personal experiences really get complicated and and overwhelming. They sure do. Because we just have more and more. I mean, even if it's a celebrity like Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley dying, I'm like, you know, I remember being so affected by that. That was a we had a black and white TV growing up. We did not have a lot of money. And so I remember, you know, Shlomil Shamazel, whatever that song was. And so a big loss, but you know, these people who have been in our lives and, and I'm so grateful to be alive at this duration in my life, but yeah, grief is everywhere, but that is a big part of my practice. Still, I work a lot with trauma, work a lot with relationships. And as you said, I just recently started a podcast and it's really interesting because every relationship has so many dimensions to it. So I'm delighted to always have that focused. Absolutely. Well, and when I saw your true beautiful measure also is when 
you would refer your clients from at MAP over to our inpatient hospice unit, where we got the privilege in the middle 90s, we took care of a lot of people living and dying with HIV and AIDS. And it was some of my most gratifying time in hospice is to take care of those mostly men. Because today we're talking about disenfranchised grief. So for anybody tuning in now, I've got my wonderful friend and colleague, Doug Jensen, who is a private practitioner here in Minneapolis. And today we're talking about disenfranchised grief, which really is grief that is not acknowledged by society as being quote unquote legitimate. And if you want to learn more about it, look up the author and therapist, Kenneth Doka, D-O-K-A. He is the grandfather of disenfranchised grief. But we, Doug and I saw a lot of that working with people with HIV and AIDS. And I think it became very important to me to really focus on that with people. Now, since that time, we've seen it a lot more. We've seen it, let's say, if a neighbor dies and somebody was very affected by it, society might disenfranchise that grief and say, well, that was, quote unquote, only your neighbor. Or if gay man dies and the partner is not acknowledged as, quote unquote, a legal or a legitimized partner, or people choose to leave a relationship and they're having a lot of grief about it, but because they chose to leave, they're not acknowledged as a legitimate griever. So it can go on and on. Today, Doug and I are hoping the message we get across to people is that if you feel the loss, it's legit, right? It's legitimate. Doug, you brought up your mom and I I know there's a lot of complicating factors in your relationship, but your mother recently just died. She did. What was her first name again? Norma. Norma. So Norma just recently died. And you and I've had a beautiful conversation about people's reactions to your grief. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so what's interesting is it's been a little bit like your comfort, if you will, and your relief of, of your mom dying has almost been disenfranchised. Can you talk a little bit about that? I certainly can, Kelly. It was interesting as you said that. I mean, you say that so simply, and that's really at the crux of the matter, what it is. To give a little background to your viewers and, and the people listening, I think there's a part where, Kelly, the the reality of my mother is that if I put it in a nutshell without going into a lot of the details that I, I know have caused you to drop your jaw sometimes when I tell you stories, but you know, my mother was a person who had mental illness. I believe she had uh, borderline personality disorder. And as a result of that, my childhood was very disruptive, inconsistent. There were times there were threats to run away. There were there was abuse. There was some borderline neglect related to food, et cetera. And so it was a very complicated relationship. And probably about 18 years ago, my mother had engaged in an abusive act with her second husband. She got married in a very complicated way. And I remember the day my middle sister called to have me uh, support my mother and provide some assistance in getting her out of that. And I was sitting in my car and I remember I said, no, I'm not helping anymore. And it was as if my brain, I wish I had electrodes all over my brain on that moment because something opened up and I became aware I'm not going to be codependent anymore in my family. I'm not going to take care of my mother at my expense anymore. I'm not going to do these things. So about that time, I started working with a therapist on my relationship and what that was with my mother and and realizing kind of how it impacted my life and my relationships with people, which I have kind of some significant attachment 
dysfunction as a result of that. And I've had to really do a lot of work on that. So I worked with a therapist, did an amazing amount of grief work. Really, Kelly, one of the things that you know about this, because I've shared it with you, but I spent every week in my therapist's office crying and crying and crying. And I barely could say anything for the first year because there was so much profound and complicated and layered grief. You know, and as a gay man growing up in rural Minnesota, that was an additional compounded issue that I could not be myself growing up. We just had no models for that. I didn't even know what the hell gay was. So, I mean, I, not to age myself, but I will. But I, I will tell you, Kelly, that, you know, my mother, through a complicated series of events, was removed from her home due to a significant hoarding and safety issue, which resulted in a lot of cleanup for my two sisters and I, my older, who no longer talks to us, because I think, honestly, the ramifications and manifestations of a triangulating mother who was not always kind and consistent in her nurturing. But yes, my mother was put into an assisted living home and died very peacefully in November, at the end of November. And the interesting thing, I was talking to the hospice nurse. I was talking to my sister probably a minute before she died. Then I got another call like a minute later saying she had died. And I got out of bed and I played some gay disco music, which I'm apt to do in the morning to get myself motivated. And I started dancing around and I'm like, this is not a normal response, but it sure is for me. Absolutely. The word relief has come out of your mouth a number of times. And that's really what it was. I felt this incredible amount of relief, like I do not have to do what I needed to do to take care of my mother any longer. And the reality was I'd really gotten to a place where I could see her as someone who brought me into the world. I'm incredibly grateful Mm -hmm. for my amazing life. I have two amazing kids. I have an amazing career. I have amazing friends such as yourself. So I'm very grateful for my life. But I'll tell you, Kelly, she was not a mother to me. So I didn't feel any sort of maternal connection. And I will tell you the funny thing about the whole process in some ways, talk about disenfranchisement, whether it's the funeral home or whether it's people that I've had to tell who are clients of mine or friends, there's an oftentimes a response of, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling much of that. Well, and I think with disenfranchised, and when I look at your story, and I know we talked about this prior to recording, I'm sorry for the loss of the things you didn't get growing up. And I'm sorry for the heartache of that and the complications that a dysfunctional childhood can have, right? Kelly, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you for that. Well, and truly, Doug, because I I know I've been in this field long enough. I've lived in this life long enough to know that one of the most judgmental experiences in this life can be grief and trauma. And it's, it either comes from the self, like we're not doing this right. Like you said, oh my gosh, I got up and I put disco music on and I, well, one might look in that and go, wow, that's really cold and callous. His mother just died. Right. However, that's not the point. Right. And one of the things I keep like this podcast is titled see my grief, meaning I want to see it all. I want to see it. And what I see with you is a form of grief, which is relief when people have lived in a traumatic, abusive, complicated relationship. I think one of the pieces, and I go back to that morning, and I remember thinking to myself, do I feel anything? And one of the things you and I both know about grief is that it might come up at weird times. Mm -hmm. There might be things that trigger us in weird ways. And I was trying to observe it. I was like, I know to do this. I know to like pay attention. Like, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? And so I canceled all of my appointments that day that she died in the morning. And I went up to go remove everything from the room that she was in. My middle sister and I, who still maintain connection and communication, she had a friend come to do some support as well. And you know, the thing that I was struck by is 
I had some kind of flashbacks. I was remembering things from my childhood. But because, Kelly, I spent years with my therapist grieving and talking and understanding how that affected me and crying and getting angry and getting rageful and getting, you know, all of the things that the combination of the childhood of not having an unconditionally loving and supportive and consistent caregiver, but really the other part about, you know, growing up gay in rural Minnesota, which is an additional loss peripherally affecting that process. I really would say, I really had to consider like, do I feel anything about this? And I did my work. The bottom line was I had done my work. I had actually been able, while my mother was still cognitively and physically present, I was able to let her know what my experience was. My mother just by chance was at my house one day and out of the blue kind of said, was I really that bad of mother? And I think it was in response to my older sister not talking to her anymore. And I said, yeah, you were. Mm -hmm. You probably should have never been a mother. And I remember saying it out loud and I just stared. I was like, oh, I just, I just gave her back this ball of muck and mud and you know dirtiness that that represented my childhood and it was so good to say but i also realized that my mother was not going to be able to take it in and process it and do anything other than just kind of stare at me so and that was all that was needed but i'll tell you the the beauty of being able to say that gave me freedom to have a boundary from that day forward Well, and I'm sitting here going, oh, that grief of, and I don't know that people would acknowledge this for you, but as, as we're talking about these griefs that don't get acknowledged today, yeah. Yeah. you having this conversation with your mom, wouldn't that have been such a beautiful opportunity for her to apologize or her to say something, but because of her own illness, right? Could not, but right there, you said it with no expectations. Like, I know you didn't have expectations from her that she would apologize. I did not. But it was another, it was another loss. Well, and Kelly, I had done enough work at that point to understand I was not going to get a response based on what you and I know about personality disorders in that cluster. You know, it's very unlikely that a narcissist or a borderline person is going to really be able to say something that is about somebody else or be able to really empathize or have that ability to look outside of themselves and own that. I think what the other piece, Kelly, that's really come up for me about this is that I have a lot of compassion that I don't think my mom got to live the life that she was meant to live. Mm -hmm. She grew up at a time when women got married, had kids, were homemakers, all that sort of thing. And honestly, as I've said to many people, I don't think my mom would have chosen to be a mom. I'm I'm glad she did. I'm glad I'm alive. I'm glad for the legacy, but thank you, my dear. But I, I really think there's a piece of this that I'm sad for her that I don't think she felt comfortable being who she was in this world. What an interesting dichotomy. It is. To have with another human, right? Yeah. And it does, I think, because in this society, we're taught what a family is, right? I mean, even though we know there's plenty of family diversions, there's chosen family, there's family of origin, there's whatever. I know that well. Yes, I know you do. And actually, you're the one that taught me that first out of the gate. But to have compassion for somebody that has hurt you over and over again, and to have a sense of understanding in a way uh, for somebody and to understand that your mom probably lived a life that was assigned to her versus one that she would have liked to. I mean, it's, it's kind of, and there's, you know, what's so interesting about grief work is there's this anticipatory phase. So when somebody's still alive, we're doing all of this, but there is still room to do grief work after somebody has died in terms of complicated relationships. Thank goodness 
you're not starting from square one now. Yeah. You know, Kelly, I'm not only not starting from square one, but one of the things, and I've shared this with you, one of the things that was so bizarre to me was that I had to go through the process of a memorial and cremation yes. and working with a funeral home and having people come who were neighbors in my hometown. You know, I, I don't generally go back to my hometown very often. And so it's been like 20 years. So I remember wow. going there being like, all right, so who's going to show up? Yes. Who will not recognize me and I won't recognize them? And so there was this weird kind of process. I remember uh, someone was coming down the aisle and I looked at her and she looked at me and I'm like, I finally walked up and I said, I know I'm probably supposed to know you. Who are you? Uh, because, you know, we look different 20 years later, 30 years later. Sure enough, it's one of my best friend's aunts who was friends with my sister. So the thing that I was struck by, though, is as the funeral director was trying to be all warm and compassionate as funeral directors are and being all very, uh, very soft. <laughs> I'm sorry for your loss. I was like, yeah, ready to move on. Let's <laughs> I know, Doug. This. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember feeling like, I'm sure he's looking at me like, who the hell is this all guy right. who's like, can we just sign the papers, get the urn and move out? You know, and Kelly, as, as I've joked with you about, like, even with the floral arrangement, I, I gave them all to my nieces and nephews, kids who were just running around the whole day having some fun. But I remember just take a, take a flower out of here. And, you know, the funeral director was trying to intervene with me like, this is tough, I know, to get rid of the flowers. No, it's not. <laughs> and I, I have thought many times, Kelly, am I in denial? Is there something I'm blocking? No. Yeah, I really am. I, no. I am not doing that. This is no. like such work that I've done on this. Thank you so much to my therapist for helping me through that. And to understand, by the way, the choices that I make relationally that look very similar to that abusive, neglectful, unavailable person, you know, consistently unattached, anxious attached relationships that I would engage in that they mirrored that in an effort to resolve that. It's interesting because I, as we're talking, it's like, well, this is actually really turning into complicated grief conversation, which disenfranchisement is part of that. This is reminding me of a talk that I did at a funeral home and it was standing room only. And people were talking about the traumatic losses and asking me questions and crying. And this brave, beautiful woman stood up and she said, can you, can you address when you didn't like the person that died? And they were very mean. Can you talk about that? She said, I'm envious of all the people in the room that are having this sad reaction because they felt so much love and connection to the person that died. This person that died in her life was very close to her on paper. You would look and go, oh my gosh. But she said, I didn't like him and I'm glad he's dead. And I thought that took such courage to stand up and ask that. What I said to her is, you still get your grief. It just isn't going to look like what society thinks it should look like. But you're mourning and you're sad for this relationship you never got to have with this person or that you deserve to have or you didn't get to have. And she said, and I'm dealing with, as you're saying, Doug, all the pressure from society that I'm supposed to be feeling this way. I should be feeling this way. And I don't feel this way. So she said, I have spent the first three months of my bereavement questioning if this is legit and there's something wrong with me. Well, of course. Right. Of course. Yeah. And it's so complicated. Absolutely. And you know, Kelly, one of the things you're really, really highlighting is that we have as a culture a really difficult time just simply talking about feelings. And as we just joked about having a two-hour conversation and we couldn't record the because we had to catch up and we talk, talk, talk. We are therapists that deal with this every day in our lives. Every workday of our lives is spent 
talking and talking and talking with people about their feelings and encouraging that expression in an adaptive way or whatever way it comes out. The thing that I'm struck by is I think after all of these years of doing this work, I don't think you and I stop doing that. I don't think there's a time in our life or a place in our life where we're not a therapist. I had somebody ask me a long time ago, do you ever shut it off? No, I don't. So if you're with me, of course, I'm like assessing, you okay? <laughs> My yeah. friends are very used to me, by the way. Like if I think there's something wrong, I'm like, all right, what's up? Right? I know. You know right. Because it's really easy to see. But Kelly, talking about grief and disenfranchised grief, we not only think that there should be a process that people go through, and I think even the anger phase, uh, if we want to call it that, or feelings that might be uncomfortable in that way. I think people have a hard time expressing it in general. And I think when they see, you know, how many people, you know, when they found out my mom died, were like, I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm like, eh, it's okay. And I, you know, it's just a weird interaction because I don't have, I didn't need anything actually. I felt relief. I felt closure. I felt all of the things. But I think based on that general experience of people having a hard time talking about it, people also don't know how to talk to people like me after I say, I'm good. That's exactly, that's, I'm just sitting here thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a society where somebody said somebody died and they followed up with the question of how is that for you? You know, because I mean, there are, you and I know this as therapists, there are a lot more stories out there like yours. There sure are. Where people were abandoned by their parents or, you know, abused by their siblings or whatever that may be that we have these normatives that we assign to people in grief. You get this long to do it. You can't do it longer than that. It's too much. It's too little. It's not enough. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you crying? And I want people just to pause and go, however I'm feeling about this loss is okay. And I get to have this. And you're having your own experience of grief around your mom, Doug. It's not as if you're not grieving, okay? Correct. It's, I agree. It's just not the grief that's on, as we talk it, the greeting card line. It's not in the cards. It's not, <laughs> it's not there. There's a lot missing in those. Right. And uh, yes. And so when people say, I'm sorry for your loss, maybe from now on, in your mind, you go, right, of what I never got. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's ultimately what it is. Because I, I've worked with lots of people in the field of grief and loss that want to have the sadness. Like that's a grief in and of itself that they don't have this quote unquote normal grief reaction. And not, that's not even a word I use, but this expected grief reaction. They envy that. They look at their friends whose mothers have died and they're, they can barely, you know, and they're so sad. Their sadness is different. Their sadness comes from the estrangement or the abandonment or the years of abuse or embarrassment absolute embarrassment. And so you are having your own grief reaction. You are. It's, it maybe would be disenfranchised in society, quote unquote. Well, and the other piece about this, Kelly, that falls both into, I think, complicated and disenfranchised grief. And I'm, I'm going to speak not only personally in my own experience of needing to help my mother find a facility that was right for her and make decisions on her behalf as power of attorney, which happened shortly after she was removed from her home. I remember there are so many people in the same circumstance where you're expected to care for and provide decisions for someone that you don't necessarily have that loving relationship with, right? I remember going to the attorney with my two sisters to get the powers of attorney and the legal matters taken care of on behalf of my mother. And I remember just looking at the attorney and I said, I'm just going to clarify here. This is not an emotional thing for me. 
My mother is not maternal to me. My mother is somebody that I am now responsible to care for. And so I'm looking to get this done in a practical way. And he, he was pretty amazing. Like in the small town of Cold Spring, he was pretty amazing. He said, damn, you have done your work. And I started laughing. I'm like, that's so funny. Um, and he's like, I can't wait for this conversation because it's refreshing, Kelly, yes. when people can be honest about what's going on. There's no beating around the bush. And these shoulds about what we should experience during those occasions. I know the funeral director just kept looking at me like, okay, I'm not going to get you to emote. I'm like, I've got nothing to give you. This is not about you. I'm not going to make your job. You got someone to cry today. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. So I think, Kelly, there's so much about that, but that's another complication, right? When you have to provide care or make decisions or help people out. And are you, when you look back on it, are you glad you did it? Oh, I'm incredibly glad I did it. I remember Kelly, and part of it is our training, right? So I kind of knew what I needed to do. I knew the way to get my mother in a facility. I knew insurance issues. I knew how to talk to people. I knew how to talk to physicians, like even the, the palliative care physician who, after my mother was hospitalized about a week before she died, he suggested palliative care. And I said, okay, we can skip a lot of this. I said, I've worked in HIV all of my life. And I said, so all of my professional life. And funny enough, our paths had crossed at some point. He was actually down here in the cities. You probably know who this is. But you know, so the crazy thing was like, we can skip all of that. I know those pieces of it, which is really helpful as well. But I love that, you know, and he was trying to be kind to somebody or thoughtful to somebody who he didn't know knew anything about palliative care. Of course. Well, and I I think this is just, it's gone fast conversation, obviously. But, and I think there's more to have of it. If you could sum up what you've been trying to say in like a minute, and then I want to ask you another question after that. When, if somebody's tuning in and they're just, they're lost, they're struggling there and you, you come on and you're basically giving us permission to just be how we are regardless. And that not all of our relationships are going to be worthy of our energy or look like society thinks they should look. And that's a, that is a sadness. So when I, if I were to say to you, I'm sorry for your loss, I would fill it in with, I'm sorry for your losses, Doug, that you experienced as such a little boy in a situation that you had no control over and that I'm sorry that things didn't change. Even the many times you tried to intervene on your mother's behalf. And I'm sorry for the loss of a childhood in, in many, many ways in the innocence of that and that's that's what I would say to you. And I, I don't know how that resonates. Oh, it resonates entirely, Kelly. And, you know, part of it is you and I know each other well after all of this time in our lives, sharing our personal and professional stories and being amazingly supportive colleagues to each other. I'm so grateful for you oh, and all dog. of the work that you're doing around grief for all of those people listening to your podcast, going to your workshops. You are a gem and a beauty in this world. I did not ask him to say that. <laughs> I actually got my Venmo, so I appreciate Kelly, you know, I always, whenever people ask me, and because this kind of goes back to like what therapy is about. And whenever people ask me what it's about, I, I always tell people it's about living an honest life. It's a simple way of saying what we need to do in order to get to the other side of whatever is complicating our life and related to grief specifically. So when you ask me to summarize, it's really just be honest about what you're experiencing and make sure that you surround yourself, whether it's professionally or personally with people who support you, regard you, have your back, 
I am incredibly grateful for all of you who are, who are in my really chosen inner circle who I know I can call at any time regarding anything. And I think that's part of getting through this process. I also, I've referenced my therapy that I did around this. He was so compassionate and so patient and so kind with every time I came in just bawling my eyes out. So I, I realized in retrospect, that was just about needing to grieve and grieve and grieve what yes. I was never able to do because it was never acknowledged, which is exactly what disenfranchised grief is. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. I mean, absolutely isn't that amazing that you've, that you have, because grief does need space. It sure does. It needs space and it needs people to hold the space, but it needs a lot of space. And it, your therapist gave you that space. And sometimes we're scared by these emotions that come up, you know, we're confused. Why are we crying about this? I don't really even like this person. Again, my philosophy is always just allow it and be with it and hold the space for it, not judging it. And I'm so proud of you that you're not trying to be something in this experience. I still honor you as somebody who grieves. Okay. And I, I just want to be very clear about that today. Because I think what society does in terms of disenfranchisement is that if people aren't grieving in the way we think they should be grieving, then therefore they're not grieving. No, that's not true. Your grief looks and maybe feels different on the inside, but at the end of the day, it's all because of a loss. And it's because of the loss of this mother figure. And it's complicated beyond complicated, right? Kelly, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours about this, because I want to say one more thing in response to what you just said. One of the pieces that I now don't think about very much is that my kids did not have a grandmother who was nurturing, cookie-making, gift-giving. Yes. My mother barely knew their names, I swear. And it was just really an interesting sort of like, there's like this loss of family heritage and legacy and, and whatnot. It starts with me. I've always told both of my kids, like, it starts with us. Yes. We are changing this now. We are creating a new paradigm of the Jensen family and, and what it looks oh. like. And I'm so proud to be able to do that. But it was really, really tough. You know, and as my kids kind of went through their own process of deciding college and careers and where they were going to live, I think the reality for me, Kelly, is I've told both of them, go, go as far as you can, do whatever you want in this life. You have my support on all levels because I don't want them to be stuck in this quagmire of mental illness that has represented what I grew up yes. with. Yes, Doug. Oh, I don't want this to end, but I know we have to wrap this up. But um, Well, I've got time. I know you need to wrap up. <laughs> I know, but, I, but this has been so beautiful. And what it is, it's the beginning of a conversation, I think, for many people as they're listening. I, I'm hoping, because people, again, the See My Grief came from, there's so many different griefs that are not seen and validated in this society. Many. And I agree. we have this kind of joke in this community about if it starts with at least, it's never going to be good, right? So like if someone were to say to you, well, at least you had a mother that was living in your house. Well, at least your mother, you know, that it's like, no, we never want to diminish somebody else's experience with the word at least. And so I just really want to acknowledge and thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing because I know... I know your clients will listen and I, and I know that can sometimes be hard for therapists to open up, but I think it's important also for our clients to know we have human experiences. We come from Absolutely. human experiences. We come from our own traumas. We come from our own stories, but you're, you are a legitimate griever, Doug, and you have a right to have all of your own feelings around your mother's life and your mother's death. 
But you're right. I mean, as a parent to not share grandparenting or to not have a grandparent spoil your kids and and come to their hockey games and, and all those things is a huge loss, especially when it's grandparents night and there's all these grandparents sitting there and there's all these, you know, it's just, it's a huge loss. So for everybody listening, however big or small you think your loss is, it's the hardest because it's happening to you. And as Doug was saying, he has found his people in his circle that aren't going to assume to you the roles you should, quote unquote, be feeling right now that are going to just hold this for you and go, wow, it really, I mean, I'm just so honored to know the story. And I even learned more before we came on today that you've been spending the majority of your life grieving for your mother. It didn't start back in November. You have spent the majority of your life grieving for your mother and your grief relationship now has changed because she's actually died, right? So that's a whole, that's a whole another podcast. It has changed and a whole nother podcast as well, Kelly. And it's been referenced multiple times in this particular podcast episode. The reality is that the manifestations and the ramifications of that sort of experience for people determines how they parent, how they manage their lifestyle, how they do everything they can, which was my case. I did everything I can to go as far away from that as I could, which meant I overcompensated in so many different ways. And I could go on and on and on. My kids would laugh at all the ways that, you know, know, there's so much more to this story. It starts with grieving. It starts with acknowledging that But then the other work about this is to figure out, so what does this mean to your life? Oh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful way to end. So it could go on and on. Such a privilege. I'm so grateful. Like I truly am truly grateful. 